But as I shared with you uh, a couple of months ago, I was asked a very good question and, 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 and said I would address at least one message on it. And I will tell you this, in studying and spending time, because I've had several months to look at this, this is almost an impossible, daunting task to try to do this in one. In fact, it's not going to do it total justice. But I trust that it would be helpful today because there are practical things as I address them in just a moment. And so this is a special message. It is a one message. And I really believe because of what I did study and come across that it's probably going to lead somewhere in the future sometime to a more elaborate and detailed study in any one of these areas. Now, in saying that, you see the title, Enemies, Evil, Justice, Mercy, and Love. Who in the world wants to preach on all of that in one message? Okay? Obviously, what a challenge that is. Why? Well, here we go. Let me get right into our struggle. We're going to waste no time this morning, and let's deal with it. In April of 2013, in the state of Massachusetts in Boston, the day of the marathon, as all of you know, there was now what's known as the Boston Marathon Bombers, where lives were taken, where many were injured. 9-11 will never be forgotten, I trust. We had a packed outhouse in this room right after 9-11, and at that time, I still have the message that I gave. I gave a powerful message, I think, back then about what was going on and said that it won't be long before that's forgotten and the ramifications. And then that led into teaching on that subject. But in 9-11, we saw a plain terrorist attack on the United States of America. We, as American citizens, have witnessed such things as Pearl Harbor. There have been situations around the world, such as the Holocaust, and there are Holocaust museums all over the world. There are situations in which we read about some things like that, but then if someone were to come in to your household, into your family, into your neighborhood, and kill someone in your family, it is going to cause something to happen in you. When we see ch children or a child abused and misused, and we see all these things. We look at these events that take place. It does something to us. We look in the scriptures, and this is countless. I'm not even touching the tip of the iceberg, so to speak. But when we see people like Uriah, who David, a man after God's own heart, murdered unjustly, we see a situation like Stephen, innocent, stoned to death. See a situation like Joseph, hated by his brothers, sold into slavery. And we get events like that, it can't possibly help to not stir up a reaction in us if we're alive. Number one, it usually stirs up anger. And by the way, that's okay provided it doesn't lead to sin. But it usually stirs up anger to start with at a minimum. Then often what it does is stirs up from there hatred, if we're honest, where we get to be 
at a stage where we hate a particular people, or we hate a particular person, or we hate a particular circumstance. And the immediate thing, usually, is a desire for vengeance. A desire for hopefully seeing that person suffer and be in pain and get what they deserve and punishment. I heard that many times with the situation that just recently happened in Boston. All kinds of suggestions of torture and the worst things possible that that man could face. And all of a sudden, even Christians have no mercy whatsoever in their immediate reaction. Then, if that isn't difficult enough, what frequently happens is now you swing the pendulum. What do you mean by that, Pastor Dan? We swing all the way to the other end. Oh, we just have to love them. Love them to death. Forget about what happened. They didn't mean it. Really? Our God is a God of love. We're to love everybody. And the swing goes all the way to the other way, the other end. And then we begin to see this, all kinds of excuses. Well, if the person was in a different social environment and had a better family situation, it wouldn't have happened. You know, maybe the bomber had his parents abuse him. And that's the reason. And maybe, you know, they had a tough childhood. And that's the problem. And then, worst of all, the immediate blame shift. Well, it's not their fault. They were men mentally incapable. Not their fault, it was someone else. It's not their fault, this happened. I mean, that, that really happens even in our own lives, doesn't it? I didn't, who did it? I don't know. Well, why did that get spilt? Well, you put it there. Really? And so, you get into a situation, isn't that true? We begin to struggle with this, if we're honest. And you get into a situation, and so we need to ask ourselves some questions and get some legitimate answers on this. And then we have a scriptural battle, if you know the word of God at all. What do you mean by that, Pastor Dan? It does tell us in the scriptures, love your enemies. Pray for them. I'll come back to those things today before this message ends. And yet, if you know the scriptures, and are you aware that there are a number of imprecatory psalms that absolutely call for judgment. Let me give you some samples. Go with me to Psalm 35. Come on, quick. Get that electrical Bible working. With technology today, you guys should be way ahead of me. I love to have the paper in my hand. Uh, watch this. This is just a sample and fast. One side says love in the scriptures. What's the other side say? Watch this, 35, verse 1. Contend, Lord, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of buckler and shield and rise up for my help. Draw also the spear and the battle axe and meet those who pursue me. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let those be ashamed and dishonored who seek my life. Let those turn back and humiliated who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind, with the, uh, with the angel of the Lord driving them on. 
let their way be dark and slippery and the angel of the Lord pursuing them. And without cause they did hide their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my soul. Let destruction come upon them unawares and let the net which hid their uh, hid catch himself into that very destruction, let him fall. Do I need to go on with the psalm? Pretty strong stuff. Go to Psalm 58. It's just a couple. Psalm 58. Just so you see, this isn't just isolation of the word of God. I mean, take this one to your love people that don't want to deal with justice, okay? Psalm 58, how about this? Verses just three to eight. The wicked are estranged from the womb. These who speak go astray from birth. They have venom like a venom of a serpent, like a deaf cobra that stops, uh, stops up its ear so that it does not hear the voice of the charmers or a skillful caster of spells. Oh, God, shatter their teeth in their mouth. Break out the fangs of young lions, O oh Lord, and let them flow away like a water that, uh, that runs off. When he aims his arrows, let them be as headless shafts. Let them be as a snail that melts away as it goes along. I remember what that was. We used to pour salt on things like that. You get the picture here. It's not very pleasant. The psalmist is not saying, oh, Lord, just love them to death. Forget my enemies. Let me just give you one more. I got several others. But just go to Psalm 69. Last one for time. Psalm 69, look at verse 21. They also gave me gall for my food. You might remember this. It's uh, for the Lord, really. And for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Then he goes on. May their table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, may it become a trap. May their eyes grow dim so they cannot see. Make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation on them. I'll stop there. You just keep going on. It says, basically, the ones that persecuted, kill them. That's pretty strong stuff. So there's a struggle. Not only do we go through the emotions, you go into scripture and you find on one side it says, love your enemies, and the other side it says, destroy them. So how do we balance this? And how do we deal with this? And how do we react properly? That's the question. Well, the text I opened up with in Jonah is very interesting. And if you just go back there for a second, in Jonah chapter 3 and verses uh, 10 to 4-4, which is just really in the meat of it there, Jonah's angry. Now, I want you to understand why. People know this story, and by the way, it's a true story. And they know that in chapter 1, just look there, God wants him to go to Nineveh. Chapter 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of of Amatea, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. That's pretty clear. The Lord says, Jonah, go to Nineveh. Now, that doesn't mean much to us. Let me give you a little perspective, very quick one. The Ninevites, from the reading that I could do, were the most wicked people of the day. You say, how wicked? They were brutal. They enjoyed frightening their enemies before they killed them. How did they do that? Now, I don't know if this is true, but they are credited with inventing, Im, uh, implanting people, uh, excuse me, impaling them. 
They were the ones who came up with the idea of impaling people and letting them stay alive and suffer with that. They were the ones that kind of came up with an idea, supposedly, and again, I don't know that that's true, but they did. That part is true. They had the joy of killing people, cutting their heads off, and putting their heads on the spear, and marching to the next enemy to show them what was going to happen to them. These people were brutal. They were wicked. And so Jonah is told, go preach the gospel. Go give them my message. Tell them to repent. Jonah says, nothing doing. That's why he ran. He said, I want nothing to do with these people. They are wicked. I hate them is basically what's going on in his heart. And then he says, as I read to you, I know that you might forgive them. So I ain't going. I'm taking my ball and I'm going home. Lord says, you're taking a ball, but you're going for a ride in the sea. And he brings up, and you know the story. And that's what happens. But I want you to understand, he ran. He would not do God's will. He didn't want to do it because these people were wicked. And I wanted to just give you this quick illustration because, scripturally, that is what happens to us. It happens to me. When I see people do the things like the Boston bombing in 9-11, and I'm sure our parents, when, when the Pearl Harbor happened and the Holocaust, you begin to hate the people that are doing this. And you begin to get all stirred up. And the last thing you're going to want to do is show them any mercy or give them a gospel. That's the immediate reaction. So how do we balance it? And how are you going to get this all in the time that you got past the dance? Impossible. I'm going to fly, that's why. But let me give you a couple of points. Before we really get into the practical, and I am going to give you a number of things I'm going to suggest the scriptures teach very clearly. And we may have a problem with this. I believe we have to first of all start by remembering the wisdom of God. Now I'll give you several points. I won't be able to turn to all the scriptures I've got listed because we'd never get through this. But I think the place to begin is God's wisdom. What is that? Listen folks, God is sovereign, number one. He is sovereign over the world and there isn't anything that he doesn't know. Psalm 90 verse two is very clear on that. He's the only God, he's sovereign. And even if you get into Psalm 139, he knows everything about us. When we sit down, when we get up, when we go to bed, what our thoughts are, our thoughts are far off. And the word of God, it tells us in the book of Hebrews, is able to penetrate and not only knows all about us, it knows what we're thinking. Right there in the pew, those of you that are, don't like this message so far or don't like anything or right now you're at dinner or someplace else, God knows where you are. He knows you're here physically and you're not here mentally. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way. He knows all about us. He knows what's going on. He is very sovereign. Secondly, don't ever forget the fact that God is holy. He is. 1 Samuel 2, 2 says this, no one is holy like the Lord. That's pretty, pretty accurate and pretty straightforward. We know Isaiah 6, 3 is another one. Holy, holy, holy. And the Lord says, be holy for I'm holy. So don't for one minute, when you look at the evil that's going on in the world, when you look at enemies, don't think for one second God has lost control. God has not lost control in 2013 in the United States of America or anywhere in the world, no matter what's going on with the economy, no matter what wickedness is going, God's still in control. Number two, God still is holy and that doesn't change. You don't change that. Three, God is a just God. This is the problem that sinners have and they don't know it. 
God is a just God. He cannot overlook sin. If he did, he would be an unjust God. We need to remember this. God does not overlook sin. Those of us that have trusted in Christ, he doesn't overlook sin. It was paid for. In Psalm 98, verse 9 is a sample. I'll give you this one. Here's what it says. I quote, He is coming to judge the earth with righteousness and will judge the world and the people with equity. Why? He's a just God. And he will do it. Obviously, if he's holy and obviously if he is a just God, he hates evil. Don't forget that. Psalm 7, verse 11, God is righteous and has indignation every day with sin. Every day. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is upon those in that situation. Psalm 34, verse 16, his face is against, listen to this, his face is against all evildoers. God doesn't change. That doesn't change God. Next, God has prepared a place for the wicked. There is a place. There are people today still, every generation, it'll continue till the Lord comes back. There are people who are debating, is there a real hell? Yes. God has created hell and ultimately a place called the lake of fire in the book of Revelation. And you can sit here today and say it's a joke and the day's going to come that you are going to die and find out it's not a joke if you didn't trust in Christ. And then where will you be? All eternity regretting your stubbornness. Plain and simple. There is a place called hell, and it is prepared for the wicked. However, this is something that we also sometimes forget. God will judge all, all men. Hebrews says, it's appointed unto men once to die, and then comes what? Judgment. The judgment. That's all foundational. But I want you to see something. Go with me to Ezekiel 18 very quickly. Ezekiel 18. Does God hate sin? Yes. Is God holy? Yes. Is he sovereign? Yes. Does he despise the wicked even as he looks at them? Yes, because of the sin. Has he prepared a place for them? Yes. Now here's a question. Does God delight in sending them to hell? No. How do you know that? Ezekiel 18, let me just give you two verses. This is only a sample again. Verse 23. Watch. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, rather than he should turn from his wicked and live? That is God's desire. Look at verse 32, same, same chapter. I chose this chapter because it had two verses in it. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord. Therefore, repent and live. Will God send people to hell? Yes. Does he enjoy doing that? No. He's even prepared the wicked for the day of judgment and hell, the scriptures say. But he doesn't delight in that. His desire is for men to repent. Well, what's the solution? You know it, John 3.16. He couldn't overlook sin. He did something about it. And he's made the provision for God so loved the world. There's love. There's true love. People today say, where's the love of God? Just look at Jesus Christ. He hasn't lost control of this world. 
It's man's sin that you're seeing. These 9-11 attacks, the bombings in Boston, everything that I listed, which was just a sample, you're seeing the result of man's sin. And God hates it, and he's done something about it. He sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And you just saw in Ezekiel, this desire is for people to turn and repent and turn away to God. Why? Isaiah is very clear. There is only one God and one Savior. It's God himself. And he came to this world, took on flesh, went to the cross, and so he's done something about sin. Now here's what I don't want you to miss before I get into the practical aspects. What? None of that solved anything for me, Pastor Dan. That's right. Unless you really think about what I just said. And then you remember this. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Christians, this is a picture of us. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for who? Who's he talking about? Me. Who's he talking about? You. He died for the ungodly. For one would hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love. Listen, I just talked about his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Yeah, but I didn't blow up Boston. You any less a sinner? We don't look at it that way. They deserve to get it. What about us? He's not done. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God, how through him, and here it is, verse 10. For if while we were what? Enemies. If you're a believer today, you were an enemy of God. You say, I never was. Then you don't know who you are from God's perspective. While you were an enemy, Christ died for you. Totally alienated from the life of God. You say, okay, I got that, Pastor Dan. But you still haven't solved the problem. How do we react? Well, now that I've laid that foundation, let's determine that. How do we apply this? And how do we do this in one message? What I would say to you is number one, Remember. What? Remember. Remember what? Your own salvation. Remember, God wants to save man. He didn't come to destroy. He came to seek and to save the lost. He came to save. Don't ever forget the fact that we are an enemy, helpless sinners, and we deserve hell. You say, not me. 
I didn't deserve hell. I didn't kill anybody. Have you ever hated anybody in your heart? I've never committed adultery. You've never looked on a woman and lusted after her, or a man and lusted after him? I never lied. You just did. Want me to go on? Have you loved the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might all the time? You say, absolutely. Who are you kidding? We forget what we were like. We forget that God came to save. I won't turn to it for time, but you remember the responsive reading? That's why I picked that one out. Here's the disciples who God, Jesus Christ, came and they come along. Hey, let's take fire and wipe these people out. Get them, get rid of them. What did the Lord say? You don't know what your spirit's like. I didn't come to destroy them. I came to save them. Who do you think you are? The only reason you're saved is because I've opened up your understanding. And you're ready to come down on them like a ton of bricks. You know something else, and I haven't got the time in length to do this, but I'll give you a reference, Luke chapter 13. You and I are capable of committing any sin. You say, I would never abuse a child. I would never commit somebody. I would never. You don't know that. Our heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked, and who can know it? And if David, a man after God's own heart, can commit murder and adultery, so can I. I'll be honest with you in a very practical way. I sit down often and talk with men in situations, try to have some accountability back and forth. And I tell them, I said, the one I don't trust is me. Today, a big issue is, is pornography on the internet and so forth. I don't even go near it. My internet is basically used for emails and checking sports scores or something like that. Why? Because I don't trust myself. That's honest. God, I could get a hold of my wickedness and run with it. You don't think you can. Yes, we can. Jonah missed it. Jonah missed the fact that Jonah, by your grace you are who I, you are, and by your grace I'm sending you with a message, and by your grace you're alive. You're just like those wicked Ninevites. Maybe you're not going around impaling people, and cutting their heads off, but you're just as wicked. And not only that, I came to save them. Sometimes we might not even want the people saved. Have you ever thought of that? Or a nation? Why in the world would I ever think you're in World War II? Why would I want the nation of Japan saved? Are you kidding me? Why would I want the Muslim world saved, you know, with all of the stuff that's going on? Why, why would I want this one saved? Why would I want that one saved? We do that. You don't think that that happened in the New Testament? I haven't got time to, to go there with you. Remember when Paul got saved? Are you kidding me? He's killing the Christians. He's taking them to prison. Now you're going to bring them into our fellowship and say this guy's saved? Right. Thank God for Barnabas. Right? Do you think that Daniel did not have hatred toward the nation of Babylon? And King Nebuchadnezzar, as a young boy, he would never go back to his home, was taken out, and for all intents and purposes, when you study the scriptures, was probably made a eunuch, because that's who he was committed to. And all of his life was changed tremendously, 
and he yet purposed in his heart what to honor God. You think he really loved Nebuchadnezzar and said, that's wonderful. I never see my family again. Wonderful. He destroyed my whole nation. Of course not. So what do we do? Number one, start by remembering who we were. Then let's get into some real practical things fast. Secondly, the scriptures say pray. Pray for your enemies. We ought to pray for them. We wouldn't be saved. We were an enemy of God. You say, well, how do I pray for them? Do, do, what do I pray for? Pray for their salvation. Pray for justice to be done. I'm going to get to that in a second. But pray. Get in and get involved in praying. How often do we pray for our enemies and their salvation? We just went through a missions conference, specifically with the Muslims. And some of them are getting saved because of the ministries of believers. Some are losing their lives still. But we can pray. Did not Stephen, while he was dying, pray for his enemies? Did not Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary, before he said it is finished, said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing? Didn't he say to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise? He could have turned around to him and said, you thief and murderer, you deserve what you're getting. I hope you die before I do. He didn't say that. We're commanded to pray. Luke, Matthew, plenty of verses on that. Here's, enough, here's a tough one. And by the way, you know the New Testament, so I'm going to bring you to the Old. Go to Proverbs 25, because we're going to go to Proverbs and Psalms for a couple of things. You're going to get a lot of rapid fire here. But pray for them. We're still not answering the whole picture yet. We're getting there. This is tough. Proverbs 25, verses 21 and 22. If your enemy hungries, is hungry, excuse me, give him food. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. Why? And you know, sometimes this gets abused. But we'll heat burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Oh, boy, I can't wait to do that then. I'll feed him all he wants. I'll stuff him full. You know, whatever. As long as I can see that head burning, I'm good. You know, just get him, let him get. That's not the idea at all. Your kindness will overcome it. And really, with the scriptures on this subject, New and Old Testament alike, point out, and I could get into that terminology if we had a little bit more time, but it, what it does is say, overwhelm them with your kindness. That's what God did for us. Didn't he? Yes. Woman taking an adultery. The stones, it said, no, get no sin, throw the stone first. No problem. Go sin no more. You got a husband. I mean, go, go get your husband. I don't have any husbands. Yeah, you've been with five men. I know all of that. You said that rightly. I'm going to give you water that'll never end. Then what do we do? Pray for them. Care for them. Listen, don't miss this. Pray for God's deliverance from them. Is that wrong? No. Part of our prayer life should be God deliver us from the likes of these people. You say, where do you have that? Let me give you, let me give you two quickies. Go, go with me to Psalm 59. Should we pray that God would deliver us from ungodly men, from enemies, from people who would harm us? Absolutely. Yeah, you want to pray for their salvation, but pray that you get deliverance as well. So what did I say, Psalm 59? 
because I got a number of references. I want to make sure I'm on the same one you are. Uh, Psalm 59, verse 1. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. This is David. Set me securely on high away from those who would rise up against me. He prayed for that. That's okay. God, deliver me. And right by, nearby, there's another quick one. Psalm 64. It's another one of David's prayers. Verse 1 again. There's actually a couple in between there, too. But hear my voice, O God, in my complaint. Preserve my life from dread of the enemy. There's nothing wrong with that. Should we pray for preservation? Should we pray to have deliverance? Should we pray to be delivered from these people? Absolutely. We should pray that way. So do it. That's part of the balance. Next. Never, ever take revenge into your own hands. Never take vengeance. You know, Romans, we are not to be vengeful. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. What does that mean? Two things that I have to give you quick, but I want you to understand it. We are not to take vengeance in our own hands. To make it very practical, you do not go around and blow up abortion clinics. That's not what we're called to do. You're not to go shoot doctors who do things you don't like. You're not to go to your enemy and say, hey, your brother just uh, did this and, and you were part of it, you planned this, bang. No, that's wrong. You don't take vengeance in your own hand. What do you do? Number one, you leave final vengeance to God. The psalm said that. The psalmist used to, he would look around, right, at the enemies and, and look at the wicked people. He says, look at they're prospering. I'm struggling in life. They're, they're having a wonderful time. God says, come with me. Takes him into his presence and says, look at the end. You'll be with me. They'll be in hell. Psalmist backs up and basically says, I understand. My attitude's not right. So what do I do? Pray to God. But here's the second one we often miss. You don't take vengeance into your own hands. Where does God set it practically? With the government. Romans chapter 13. They may not realize, the President of the United States, to be very practical with you right now, the President of the United States, the Governor of Massachusetts, the Governor of New Hampshire, all of our senators, all of our representatives, and all the way down the line, right into the mayors and so forth. And I grew up in Lawrence. Every time I pick up the paper, I shudder when I see what's going on in that city. But you, you look at all of these things, and, and what do you do? They may not understand that they are the ministers of God, but they will answer for that. Our responsibility as Christians is to recognize that they've been placed there by God, listen, for justice, for our protection, for our peace. And what are we to do? Timothy says, pray for your leaders. How often do you and I pray? I won't do this, but think about it. How many of you even know your governors, who your state senators are, who your representatives are, and if you don't know who they are, don't tell me you're praying for them. You know, part of the reason we have this country that's turned upside down is because Christians aren't on their knees praying for their leaders, biblically. That is commanded. And so we can take action, not take action in our own hands, 
but we pray that God would give our government leaders the responsibility to recognize who they are, why they've been put there, and that they would carry out justice, which they're not doing. But we can't do that. Next, another practical thing, and I'll give you a quick summary at the end. Never, never, ever approve what evil or our enemies are doing. God says you never call evil good and good evil. Don't ever get to the place that you start excusing what was done in Boston was wicked. What was done in 9-11 was wicked. What was done in the Holocaust was wicked. The illustrations that I used earlier, if a child is abused, that's wickedness and speak out against it. Never excuse it. In fact, I'll give you the references, it won't turn. Proverbs is pretty specific. When evil comes, it says in Proverbs 29 that the righteous man groans within himself. We should. Why? He doesn't like it. Proverbs 28, verses 12 and 28 say this. When evil comes, the righteous man runs and hides. He gets away from it. He doesn't approve of it. It's practical. And there's illustrations of that. Even Elijah. You know, we criticize Elijah. Look, he had the great miracle, then he ran. Yeah, he ran because an evil woman said, it. before the day's out, you're going to be dead. So he took off. And God took care of him. He ran and hid from evil. You have evil come over to your doorpost, you don't just say, well, this is wonderful. I'm just going to love you to death. No, get out of there. Call the government if you can't. Run, and in some cases, self-defense. I'm not talking about not being self-defendant. I haven't got time for that one either. But there is a place for self-defense if it's allowed by the government. Don't ever gloat over. You need to look at this one. Go to Proverbs 24. Don't ever gloat over the misfortune of the one who has done the evil. That's a tough one. Proverbs 24. In other words, if your enemy is suffering, let's say it doesn't happen today for the most part, but let's say they were going to give the person the electric chair. You don't gloat and say, good. I hope something goes wrong and they really feel the pain. You don't do that. That's not godly. That's not God's heart. Proverbs 24, 17. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not see the issue. Do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. You say, I want him to stumble. I want him to get. You want justice is what you should want. And you should want that to come from the government, and you should want that to come from God. That's why you pray for those. But you don't rejoice when they actually stumble. What that is revealing is your own wicked heart. That's not the heart of God. In fact, I will tell you this. I won't turn there, but Job, it's in chapter 31. Job, as he's analyzing himself, that's one of the things he says. God, I'm just before you. I have never rejoiced when my enemy stumbled. He said, examine my life. I felt bad for that situation, and I prayed for them. That's exactly what we're told to do in the New Testament. Now, here's the tough one. You pray for them. You love them. You reach out to them. You don't take vengeance. You don't rejoice when they stumble. But you praise God 
when deliverance comes. Get that in your notes. What? See, you don't take the vengeance yourself, but you pray for justice to be done. And if you see the government carrying out justice, you still want to pray for their salvation, but you rejoice if, if the death penalty's in and someone's put to death. You rejoice not that the person died and went to hell. I already said that. You don't rejoice that, oh, I hope they suffer. What you rejoice is, praise God, the system worked like it was supposed to. And justice was done. Where do you find that? In many places, but go to one. We're in Proverbs, Proverbs 11. Watch. Another great one, by the way, there's several, but some, you mark it down, Psalm 1, I think it's 136, if I get my notes right, verse 24. If it's not, it's Psalm 134, but I think it's Psalm 136, verse 24. But let's look at Proverbs 11:10 quickly. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. When the wicked perish, there is joyful shouting. I heard Christian preachers during what happened in 9-11 say that. Don't ever rejoice. Why shouldn't we shout for joy if justice, when, when Osama bin Laden is caught, you don't rejoice that he's in hell. Why wouldn't you rejoice when uh, Saddam Hussein is, is captured? You should. And then he was executed by his own people. That's justice. You do rejoice over that. You don't rejoice over hell or want them to be punished. The ideal, ideal situation is that you pray for their salvation, and before they go into eternity, they get saved. You say, but I don't want to be in heaven with that person. Who wants to be in heaven with you? <laughs> and you say, you know, we, we think about that, but we're wicked. We are. We are. And we forget that. That's why I started with that. I really have to summarize. Time's gone. we got a church meeting. Let me try to put it together, a little confusing maybe a little bit here. How do we have a balance? Handle our own attitudes. Remember that we were delivered. Pray that deliverance would come from God. Pray that deliverance would come through our leaders and justice would be done. When you're praying for an enemy, when you're praying for someone that's hurt you, pray for their salvation. Still pray for that they receive justice, but pray that they get saved. Why? Because you know that God's not going to delight in sending them to the lake of fire, and you shouldn't want to delight in that either. Show kindness when you get opportunity. That doesn't mean you approve of what they're doing. How many times, you know, the simple passage of Proverbs, a soft answer turneth away wrath. Kindness sometimes will turn an enemy away. It will. You might not think it. I, I need to be careful with this, but it, it is an illustration that came to mind. You know, if you stop by a traffic cop, at that moment, they might be an enemy to you. And you can turn around and say, ah, what am I being stopped for? Now, nah, okay, fine, ticket, you know, whatever, go. Sometimes you say, your officer, you're right. I was speeding. I deserve what I'm getting. And sometimes he came over ready to knock you down and throw, you know, and you know what? Slow down a little, please. That's just kind of a practical illustration of the same thing. Sometimes your enemy, they'll come. I tell you, listen to the testimony of Camille Joaquim when he came to this country. He literally had a gun underneath his throat. Now, they didn't understand something, but the people right behind him got shot, and he didn't. Why? Sovereign hand of God. But also, he didn't act like a wise guy while he was a Christian. They were looking to kill Christians, but they didn't know what a Baptist was. They didn't understand what it was. And a simple thing like that, 
And while the machine gun was under Camille's throat, he simply showed him his ID, was praying to the Lord, and the guy didn't know what it was, and because they were kind and didn't try to fight or whatever, get going. Next car behind him, every single one of them got killed. Quite a testimony. Don't seek vengeance, not on your own. Rejoice when justice is done. We should. When you see justice is done, rejoice. Don't rejoice over them being damned to eternity. You should be sad about that. And here's the last two I'll give you that I never got to. Bottom line, live for Christ. Live as Christ lived. He loved his enemies. He laid down his life. It could cost you your life in a situation. But live as Christ would have us live. And you know what else? The last one is, would you start sharing the gospel? Why aren't we witnessing verbally? We're afraid. Afraid of what people might think. Afraid that people might not end up in hell. Where would we be? I praise God for my sister who shared the gospel with me when I was lost. I thank God there was a man that I was working with in a business world that had the courage to ask me the question, where would I be if I died that night? And even though I shrugged him off and said, in heaven, why? I didn't want to hear anything more. God wouldn't let that go away. And I thank God that while I was an enemy, he saved me. Folks, we need to be out witnessing we need to be on our knees praying more than we ought to be complaining even about our enemies. There's a balance. Rejoice with justice. Pray for that to be done. Rely on God and treat with kindness. Not easy to do, and it's only in a nutshell, but in one message. Hopefully, he'll help us in a little practical area when I still think of the man that's in jail for the Boston bombings, my prayer for him is that he would get justice, but also before that justice is carried out, if it means his life, that he would come to know Christ. Why? Because that's what he needs. He was fooled by his conscience. He was fooled by his heart. He was fooled by that religion. And he was taking it all in. Nothing more than a blind man that needs his eyes opened by a sovereign God who loved him. And if he comes to that understanding, I would rather see him in heaven and then get his justice here on earth that should come because God will be well pleased with that. Let's close in prayer. Father in God, I know time trying to deal with enemies, justice, and balance, it's been hard to even do that in this hour. But I pray that you'd help us Help us, first of all, to remember the joy of our salvation and how, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. Help us to have a grateful heart. Help us to pray for our leaders in government and help us to pray to you for justice to be done, for our leaders to understand their position. Help us, Father, to never take vengeance into our own hands, but to let it rest with you. Help us to indeed love and pray for our enemies Help us to rejoice when justice is done. But give us a heart that wants to see 
them come to know Christ as we have. And Lord, give us boldness. We all talk about how soon the Lord will be returning and what is going on in our, our world around us. And yet, Father, very few of us ever have a burden to go and bring the gospel. Lord, change our hearts. Help our attitudes to be what they should be so we'd be Christ-like. Others would come to know Christ right here in this church and that we'd grow and be a testimony for Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be having the, uh, I guess I can announce it now, we're going to have a closing song, and then we'll allow people, this should not be a long